Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station podcast, a 15 to 20 minute show about learning the Rust programming language. This is episode 20, putting code in its place. One of the things that may have thrown you a bit when coming to Rust is thinking about how to organize your code. Certainly, it is one of the things that I've had to think about a little bit more. This is, like every episode I put out, still something I'm getting a handle on. But I've picked up a fair bit by reading Rust code bases over the last couple of years, even if I don't have anything at particularly large scale myself. And there are some guiding principles we can draw on, not only from Rust, but from other languages, as we think about where to draw the boundaries for our modules and our crates. Many of you coming to Rust are likely coming in from a language like Java or C Sharp, where it's extremely common to group your code primarily by class or interface, and where it's most common, not necessarily universal, but most common for each file to have one class in it. Java has packages comprised of many classes and interfaces, and C Sharp has namespaces comprised of many classes and interfaces. Rust's modules have some things in common with packages and namespaces, but also a couple important differences, which I'll mention below. Others of you are coming in from C or C++. C++ often has similar conventions to Java or C Sharp about having one class per file, but the lines get a little bit blurrier there because C++ doesn't require everything to be attached to classes the way that Java and C Sharp do. You can have functions and static items off by themselves when it makes sense. Modules in C or C++, then, are usually marked off in terms of compilation units, which basically comes down to source files and the things they pound include. And you use header files to define your public interfaces. Rust doesn't have header files at all, of course, so there will be some sharp differences there, and its notion of a compilation unit is also quite different. For Rust, the compilation unit is the crate, not the file, not the module. Though, as we saw back in episode 6, files are important, and indeed, that file or module level is where we'll spend most of our time today. Some of you are coming in from languages like Ruby, Python, or JavaScript, which all have more or less the idea of standalone functions as well as classes, and they also have their own distinct ways of structuring and supplying public interfaces to chunks of related code. In Python, these map, for the most part, to files and directories with a special file in them. JavaScript is similar, but it adds the idea of explicit imports from a given file, which can be imported into another file, modules in both cases. TypeScript further extends that with namespaces, which function much like C-sharp namespaces do. The basic structural divisions in these languages include both modules and classes, and it's fairly typical to have only one class per module in well-organized code in them, and especially only one exported class. This same idea is going to feature prominently in our approaches in Rust. Finally, those of you coming in from the world of strongly typed functional programming languages languages like Haskell or F-sharp or Elm, will primarily be used to organizing things into related data structures and functions designed to operate on them. This, I will freely admit, is the area of all of these where I have the least experience, though I remain very interested in using these languages more actively, and I've played with them a bit. But this approach, too, features fairly clearly in Rust, just, as usual, with its own twist— 
Indeed, it's fair to say that Rust has taken the tack here, as in so many areas in the language, of trying to pull in the best ideas from many of these other organizational systems, and then to mix them together into a form that feels nicely rustic in its own crates and modules system. As we talked about all the way back in episode 6, the basic units of organization in Rust are modules and crates. And again, crates are both the overall unit of compilation and also the overall unit of functional separation. The time to break things out into distinct crates is where you can see a given chunk of functionality being reused across more than one project. For example, small though it is, I may eventually pull the little YAML metadata extractor that I've written for Lightning, and about which I'll have more to say in a little bit, into its own little crate. I am sure I'm not the only person out there who might find it useful to extract YAML metadata from a markdown document. On the other hand, the vast majority of the implementation details of Lightning will be specific to Lightning, and they won't be readily reusable. So, there is a good opportunity there to extract a crate which is broadly useful, even though it's a relatively small part of this actual project. And I will take this opportunity to rave one more time about Rust's crate system. The more time I spend taking advantage of crates.io and Cargo, the more grateful I am to have it. In C and C++, because they have historically lacked a good story for managing packages as such, it has often been painfully difficult to do that kind of extraction work. I've seen it be much easier in practice to simply copy and paste code into another code base than to try to manage that separate code as a separate library, simply because there isn't a good way there to deal with version locking or those kinds of concerns. You can do it, but it's painful. Cargo makes it easy. Now, on to talking about how we organize our crates in modules. Here I'm looking not so much at the mechanics, which I covered in some detail back in episode 6, but in terms of philosophy. What pieces do we put where, and why? First, though, I do want to add one clarification to those details from episode 6, given my references to C-sharp and TypeScript above. There is one major difference between the C-sharp and TypeScript namespaces and modules in Rust. C-sharp and TypeScript allow you to extend namespaces in various places. You can define them across multiple files, that is. A Rust module is only defined in a single place, whether that's a file or a mod block. This doesn't end up being much of a problem, though. It's not that common, at least in my experience or the things I've seen reading around, to want to extend a given namespace. And since, as I discussed in more detail back in episode 6, you can re-export items in other modules, which gives you basically what you need. And I like that trade-off, honestly. Extending namespaces from arbitrary locations feels rather like monkey patching a class or an object in a dynamic language. There are times when that's appealing, but it has some serious downsides in terms of clarity and in terms of the expected behavior of the code. Even so, the big analogy to namespaces is there. Namespaces, like Rust's modules, are a way of providing a space that isn't just a data structure, like a class, for a given name to live in. For example, a struct metadata with a method parse on it Metadata colon colon parse could mean a lot of things. Item colon colon metadata colon colon parse tells us a lot more. 
we have some idea now that this metadata is attached to an item. Given a crate like lightning, we would then have a full path of something like lightning colon colon item colon colon metadata colon colon parse. And all of a sudden we have a very good idea of what is going on. And this leads us to an important point we need to have in mind when designing the structure of our modules in Rust. Rust data structures, its structs and enums, and in the unsafe category, unions for that matter, are open for extension via the trait system. But its modules are not. The interfaces they export are the interfaces they export, and that's it. You can't reach into them and pull things out that they don't choose to expose. Those of you familiar with popular tenets of object-oriented programming may recognize that this has important consequences in terms of quote-unquote information hiding. Put another, and in my opinion, better way, since not only data structures but also modules have public APIs, we have considerable flexibility in designing those APIs. We have, specifically, a great deal of flexibility in what we make private and public and to whom, so we don't end up feeling the need for Java's friend or the more general protected modifier, which sits somewhere between public and private in class-structured languages. Instead, we can have a struct with public fields, and we can access those fields freely throughout the module which declares that struct. And all we need to do to prevent other modules from using that struct and its fields is nothing. We just don't write pub in front of the struct declaration, and it's invisible to anything outside the module. This gives us all the granularity and all the flexibility we could wish for in general. There may be exceptions to that, but I haven't found them yet. Now, given crates as compilation units and modules as namespace-like divisions of responsibility, we can talk about how we want to structure our code across those various divisions. I'll sum this up by saying the basic principle I use is think about boundaries in terms of responsibilities. That, of course, is an obnoxiously general and vague principle, but I think one of the challenging things about this topic in any language is that this isn't obvious. The two most difficult problems in computer science may be naming things cache invalidation and off by one errors, but in any case, organizing your code has to be in the top 10. It's closely related, in my view, to naming things, and it is hard. So one reason we make such a big deal out of things like the single responsibility principle, and one reason we have to come back to it over and over again, at least in the context of object-oriented programming, but I think also in general, is that it's a lot of work to determine what the sole responsibility of a given class or data structure in general actually is. And the same challenge confronts us here. The fact that we group things primarily by module rather than by class doesn't change the fundamental difficulty of that task. But thinking about that, boundaries in terms of responsibilities we can get a little more specific about how we can break apart our code in Rust. And for that matter, a lot of what I'm saying here you may find applicable elsewhere. I do pretty similar things in TypeScript or JavaScript, too. First, I just try to group closely related data structures and their associated functions. And Rust's impl implementation blocks go a long way toward making that straightforward in most cases. 
But even where I have a function which isn't in an impl block for a given data structure, for example, a function which is associated with more than one data structure and doesn't logically belong to either one of them in particular, I'll try to keep that close to where one or the other of the data structures are contained. Many times, that'll end up being a module which is parent to the two modules which define those data structures. Not always, of course, but often. And that takes me to my second habit. In general, I tend to want one public struct or enum per module. That's far from a hard and fast rule, but it's a habit that I've maintained not only in Rust, but also, as I said, in JavaScript and TypeScript, and before that in Python over the past couple of years, and I've had very good results with it. In my experience, it makes it fairly obvious where to draw the lines, most of the time. At least once you have a good handle on what the data structures themselves should be. Beyond that, there may be any number of internal data structures, but it turns out there's actually a pretty good reason for the one class to one file structure that's normal in Java, for example. And that reason is that at the end of the day, data structures are the fundamental things we're dealing with. And an enormous amount of the work we're doing in all software engineering is transforming data from one representation or one structure to another. So for a concrete example, in my Lightning static site generator project, one of the things I've been slowly plugging away at in spurts and drabs here and there in the past few weeks has been extracting metadata. Given a block of YAML metadata at the top of a markdown item, I want to extract all of that and turn it into a hash map. So I'm dealing with two data structures there, a source file, which ultimately is just a big string, and an output structure a struct consisting of the extracted metadata. So the things this module exports are that metadata struct and its implementation. There is also an associated enum type, which is a child of that struct, and accordingly, which is also exported, as it has to be. You can't leak a private type. And that right there is basically the only exception I regularly make to my only export one data structure from a module habit. But the idea remains the same. You could put it this way to be a little clearer. I try to only export one top-level data structure from any given module. Any other data structures that I export are pieces of that top-level structure, other structs or enums contained within it. As an aside, and amusingly, at least to me, it was articulating this idea for this episode, which helped me realize that I had drawn the lines in the wrong place in Lightning. Prior to thinking this through, I was treating the item as part of the builder to build a site and the metadata pieces as part of the item. And I was exporting the metadata from the item module. But I realized that it should actually be at item colon colon metadata in terms of the modules. And there are two reasons for that. First, although the site builder does need to know about items and their metadata, Items are really their own domain, and it's conceivable that I might want to use the item data structure somewhere else besides the builder or for other reasons. Second, item metadata is its own concern and has its own data structures, which item in turn can use. It's a subsidiary concern of the items module rather than what is fundamental to items. So I broke them apart. Finally, this brings us to the fact that parent modules may indeed want to export some of their children items for convenience in terms of API design. 
Sure, having split item out into its own root module and put metadata as a submodule under that. I could make myself write item colon colon metadata colon colon capital metadata colon colon parse from stir anywhere that I need to use that particular method. But that's long and tedious, and it's not really needful. Instead, right now, I'm doing pub use metadata colon colon metadata in the mod.rs, which defines the item module. And as a result, a caller can simply do item colon colon capital metadata, again, for that struct, colon colon parse from stir to parse a bit of metadata out of a string. That's a much nicer API. As a rule, the only modules which I let export more than one primary data structure are those top parent modules. Note that I do therefore distinguish between data structures defined and exported by a given module and data structures which are re-exported by another module for convenience. The reason I make that distinction is that the former defining and exporting is an organizational concern. It is a division of concerns question. The latter, simply re-exporting things, is a question of the ergonomics of using that module. And those are worth distinguishing. How I want to consume a module may be very different from how I want to think about the separation of concerns within my code base. They're related, of course. You can't talk about separation of concerns without considering how those pieces you're splitting apart will be used. In the end, it's possible I won't be exposing metadata distinctly from the items which use them at all, though they'll still be exported in order to be attached to any such item export. But having them in their own module allows me to deal with concerns that have nothing to do with markdown parsing in one dedicated place. Because extracting YAML metadata from the top of the block and converting it to the kind of hash map based structure I need really is quite distinct from converting the body of the item from markdown to HTML. So in that sense, I separate my code into modules based on the single responsibility principle, much as you might with classes in a class-oriented language. So to summarize, modules are the fundamental unit of organization in Rust code. Modules should group closely related data structures and functions, and as part of that, modules should normally only export one primary data structure. Crates are for whenever you need to reuse a given module across more than one project. Remember, this is more something I have felt my way to than something I think you should treat as a hard and fast rule. But it has been useful for me, and hopefully it serves as a helpful set of guidelines for starting to think about the structure of a Rust codebase, even if you end up adapting it yourself as you grow more experienced with the language. Today's episode was brought to you specifically by Christopher Gifford. One of the higher sponsor tiers on my Patreon page includes getting to pick a topic, and this was a point of interest for him. So thanks, Christopher, both for sponsoring and for prodding me to think on this. Thanks as well to Chris Palmer, Dan Abrams, Daniel Collin, Matt Rudder, Ben Whitley, Peter Tillemans, Philip Keller, Rafe Levine, and Vesa Kailavirta for sponsoring the show this month. You can see a full list of sponsors in the show notes. Thanks also to my friend Ben McCoo for helping me come up with the punny title. Seriously, people, I spend a ridiculous amount of time trying to think of good titles, and my slightly sick self was just not getting there yesterday when I wrote this. 
If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can set up recurring contributions at patreon.com slash neurostation, or you can give a one-off contribution at any of a number of other services listed on the show website. And if you're a company interested in advertising to developers, you can email me. You can find show notes with links, code samples, and more at neurostation.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at neurostation, or you can follow me there at Chris Kreitcho. And if you enjoy the show, would you do me a huge favor? Tell someone about it. A friend, a colleague, a coworker, someone you meet at a coffee shop. I actually told someone about Rust that I met at a coffee shop just a couple weeks ago. You can also help others discover the show by rating and reviewing it on iTunes or in another podcast directory, or just by sharing it around on whatever social media you use. Until next time, happy coding. Happy coding.